Welcome along to the Red Star Radio, not only weekend edition, but the last Red Star Radio of the year, uh, a truly historic event. And what better way to actually end uh, a year's worth of broadcasts by than by returning to themes that we've explored repeatedly throughout uh, the course of the, the previous 12 months, which are Lenin, COVID, and bad interpretations of Lenin by leftists. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, we are looking at one essay in particular today, dealing with the uh, supposedly the politics of, or the need for a politics in the post-COVID world. Uh, so, Layla, can you describe uh, what article is it that we're looking at today? So we're looking at an article posted on the Morningstar website. It's entitled, After Corbin and Sanders why we need a Leninist post-pandemic politics. So this caught my eye because of the headline and I got really excited. I was like, yes, this is exactly what we need. <laughs> this is going to be great. I can't wait to read this opinion essay posted on the Morning Star, no less. Um, paper Notorious for being pro-lockdown and pro-zero COVID. Is that correct as well? I, I feel like I'm not, am I being unfair? Yes, they were literally coordinating the campaign for zero COVID or one of the key players in it over here, along with every brainless Labour Party backbencher. Right, but then I started reading the the paper, uh, the opinion piece, and it turns out that um, the author, whose name is Conrad Hamilton, uh, was a bit clickbaity with this headline, in fact. and um... <laughs> Hey, you're talking about a guy who wrote a much-needed leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, essential. <laughs> essential work i mean as a canadian i'm sure you feel great yeah, i mean um canadians had no idea that jordan peterson was so stupid until that book came out um but uh no just i'm just kidding i'm sure i haven't read that book so i don't want to make too much fun of it um but uh, you know it is it is a bit of a chapo-esque type of critique to make like it <laughs> yeah i i haven't read it but i am prepared to make fun of the idea that Jordan Peterson represented some unique challenge. Well, I mean, that was a a real thought at the at a certain jun juncture. Like I remember, like yeah. three years ago, that yeah, was a huge thing. People really felt like he was. Uh, I don't know what they used to call him, like alt right. I think that was the the term that was popular back yeah, then. Like the, the, yeah, like remember the um, what was it called? The intellectual uh, the deep the, the intellectual dark dark, yeah. dark web or whatever the hell yeah, it was wow. called. Wow, wow. This is a pre-pandemic stuff. <laughs> I hardly remember. Yeah, it all seems so stupid oh, yeah, now, so doesn't distant. it? Wow, this is uh, simpler times, huh? <laughs> Our biggest problems were critiquing Jordan Peterson. Yeah, the idea being that the that a combination of Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, uh, Joe Rogan, and um, uh, Candace Owens and various others were uh, going to lead some sort of like heinous, like crypto fascist mm. revival. Mm. Yeah, interestingly, their um, positions kind of um, they can, that group of people got rather fragmented over the pandemic politics. Um, each of them took different positions. I think uh, until recently, uh, Jordan Peterson was for the mm. you know uh, like. Well, he was for yeah. it all. He was right up there with his old sparring partner Slavoj Zizek on the taking yeah, the I same position. Yeah, I think he's position. only recently turned uh, turned against the uh, course of vaccination campaign, but before then he was uh, joining in with the chorus. Um, I think someone who Candace Owens seems to have been a, seems to have been a bit more consistently anti lockdown, anti authoritarianism. Sam Harris is very much on board with mm. all the authoritarianism, so 
I guess it wasn't really wasn't a political formation as we thought. <laughs> it's almost as if it was a, a collection of individuals that were that came that fell apart under the slightest pressure and not a coherent it movement was more at all. Feeling it was more of a it was a political movement of the heart. It was a vibe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a meme. <laughs> um, well, in any sense, um, this person too was emerging um, as the the critical wing of of this movement, I guess, or of this time period. Uh, like as many of us may have been, I I was also. Well, I, I never thought that Peterson was a big concern. Um, I read one of his books and thought it was, or some of his one of his books, and I thought um, his whole ideas were kind of stupid. I do remember being inordinately um, offended by his opinion on women. So I guess mea culpa there, but <laughs> now I see how, um, now that the real problems are here, I kind of see how all this stuff pales in comparison to, I don't know, Jordan Peterson saying that women shouldn't wear lipstick at work or something. <laughs> so <laughs> We can't even go to work now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, innocent times. <laughs> But can you wear lipstick under your mask? That's the crucial question. These are the crucial questions that, unfortunately, Conrad Hamilton does not get to in his essay. Um, but what he does get to yeah. is um, completely ignoring most of what Lenin says and coming to the conclusion that we need the state after all, and the state just didn't go far enough. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes. Very contradictory to his title, to his headline. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, the 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 subheading is still reeling from the failure of the populist left. We have been neglecting serious intervention in the class struggle and the goal of state power. The ongoing pandemic is perfect. Well, there's a word missing here. Is the perfect chance to change that? Uh, yeah, some. I think the Morning Star might have uh, cut back on its sub editors. Yeah. Well. Doesn't that doesn't that subheading kind of sum up all the errors that the left made over COVID? The idea that it was the idea that this the idea that this was going to represent like some sort of change change towards like a revival of welfare capitalism or something that 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 the the pandemic alone would make that change. Yes, um, I think he kind of locates the problem correctly so in his essay he admits that the so-called populist left that was you know kind of the remnants of the failed corbyn movement in the uk so in this case or bernie sanders movement in the the usa um their hope with the dawn of the pandemic is that it would essentially force the capital state to make these enormous um, um compromises and increase social provisioning, etc., because they were facing an existential threat in the form of this virus. Um, so he writes, uh, for instance, that uh, what our current political class has shown us since the outbreak of the pandemic is that if they're willing to do anything at all, it can only consist of piecemeal provisions. They will not abolish landlords. They will impose a short-term, and um, they will impose a short-term amnesty on rents to be repaid by the increasingly jobless poor at time of collection. They will not socialize big tech firms that have profited from the pandemic. Um, so, you know, I think that, yes, this maybe is a rude awakening, finally, <laughs> to a lot of people on the left that the state will not do a, quote, real lockdown. Um, the state will not reinforce uh, health care provisioning in any significant sense if they do so at all, 
Um, if you're like the learning class in Canada, they've been continuing on with retrenching healthcare services and diminishing the amount of funding going towards healthcare services. Um, and yeah, of course, they're going to call back, they're going to call in their debts once this whole thing is done. Like, so we should all prepare ourselves for a period of harsh austerity um, following the the uh, dispensations that they gave in terms of welfare checks, which were only ever to prevent the collapse of various markets, including the housing market, the housing market, for instance. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. He's kind of able to see the problem. He's like, you know, we had these expectations and they were let down. But it's I think the direction he, it takes him, um, which is initially towards Lenin. So I'm like, yes. This is good. Like, you're getting closer. <laughs> but he takes from Lenin a very, a very uh, thin piece of his whole thoughts, which I think is very decontextualized. Decontext like, it's, it's literally decontextualized. And then he mentions part of Lenin's thought about the state, but completely drops that by the end of the essay. So... Okay, so maybe we can deal with this first part of what he thinks Leninism means. Um, okay, so what he likes, he what he takes from Lenin is this um, Lenin's uh, political approach to the revolution in Russia, which was you know famously bringing together the mass of peasants, which outnumbered the proletariat by a large amount, and um, having them come in behind. Uh, the proletariat, the urban proletariat based in the major cities to overthrow the government and install Soviet rule. And he's like, you know, that's really good that he was able to do that. He was able to bring together people that are not just workers. He was able to bring together the masses, you know, and lead to a revolution. Um, so I guess like, so I, okay, is this interpretation correct of Lenin? Because I, I think this is really common, like that he, he his, his um, approach is more populist than Marxist. I think this is actually a, a pretty common accusation thrown at him, at Lenin. It's a yeah, misconception. I agree. Um, because it's what Hamilton's doing is actually completely in line with what the general editorial line of the Morning Star has been for 60 years. No, 70 years. Um, which is to present Lenin as almost being a reformist. Mm -hmm. And I would expand on that by saying that the, the way Hamilton presents the uh, relationship of forces between the proletariat and the peasantry is an obfuscation. Because what he's trying to present it as, like, oh, well, the, these two forces came together and together they made the revolution. Now, that on one level is true. But when you look at the actual details of what was happening in Russia, it is a misrepresentation because Hamilton is portraying this as like two forces that came together to act equally with each other. The truth is that the, and this is how Lenin explicitly theorized it, the proletariat led the way and had to lead the way against, first of all, the, the, the clapped out czarist regime, but also then against the bourgeoisie. And they, Lenin's genius one of an aspect of his genius was in a, being in a, able to construct a set of basic demands, the whole, you know, the formula of peace, bread, and land, in a way that would bind together the proletariat and the peasantry to take revolutionary action against the Russian bourgeoisie. But the proletariat is in the lead 
at every stage of that. And the peasantry is often playing a heroic role, but a supporting role nonetheless. And that's a crucial distinction to make, because without the actions of the Russian proletariat in the industrial centers, there's no February or October revolution. The peasantry, the Russian peasantry acting on its own couldn't have done either of those things. It was the fact that the um, the proletariat strikes in the major urban centers and the major industrial heartlands all over Tsarist Russia and then against the bourgeoisie later on that was the destruction of both of those forms of uh, bourgeois rule. Again, a peasant's revolt with the peasants in the lead role would not have done the same thing because that was what the uh, politics of the social revolutionaries and Narodniks were. And uh, by obfuscating that aspect and by not dealing with how Lenin saw the alliance being built, I think Hamilton's creating a straw man of Lenin in order to support his own rather woolly social democratic conception of politics, whereby he, like our old friend Polansus, seeks to dilute the role of the working class by elevating the role of other elements almost <laughs> it sounds almost like Marcuse. Yeah. He says in his essay, um, Lenin then sought to generate a combination of class forces. The importance of this today, decades after the heyday of the Western working class's political influence cannot be understated. Um, so this reads to me, like, so essentially he's making the claim that the Lenin brought together the petty bourgeoisie and the peasants into some kind of class collaborationist project and this is not what Lenin was trying to do like he wanted to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat okay so um actually <laughs> he was pretty clear on that which um would have excluded actually i mean actually did exclude <laughs> like the petty bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie in that democratic in the process of democracy i think the peasants did have soviets um but they're mostly disorganized like most of them were and um um you know, he he wasn't like seeking to. Um, it was a. I think Lenin's approach was more of a political strategy to ensure the success of the proletariat, which sounds a little cynical, but actually is completely completely correct because Lenin and all of these second internationalist Marxists and and after, when they were honest, um, knew that there was no future for the peasantry. They were a dead end class. Like they had no place in modern society. And the reason is because peasants, all they want is to get a little piece of land and farm that land as inefficiently as possible um, for a subsistence existence. And like, that's really all they want. All right. But that's not the basis on off of which you can build communism. Right. So the plan was always to take power, give power to the working class so that the working classes could develop the country and abolish the peasantry entirely. So Lenin's approach was based on a voluntaristic approach. Stalin took a different route as famously as we know. Um, but um, yeah, so it, it's not, I, I wouldn't never say it was a alliance of equal class forces or something like that. It, it, it very much was a strategic decision to ensure the success and victory of the proletariat, right? He wasn't seeking to give power to the peasants, right? He was seeking to give power to the Soviets, which were predominantly worker so Soviets. Um, so that's, that's really just it. But now he's, but, you know, that was a specific strategic choice made in the context of Soviet Russia, which wasn't the ideal country for a revolution. And Lenin knew it. And he knew that the success 
ultimately of that revolution would depend on the revolution revolution happening in more developed nations around Russia. Obviously, namely, Germany was one of his big targets. Um, so um, is, it was it an ideal situation? No, but Lenin thought it was a good move. And I think correctly that um, to, to, to to do that revolution in Russia because he saw it as the weakest link in the imperial chain, right? So he thought that if he could trigger the revolution and have the revolution in Russia, it would spread and become a worldwide revolution. So unfortunately, he was wrong at that point, but he was correct in understanding that it was the weakest link in the imperialist thread, and it did change the course of history for that uh, reason. Um, so, so I think this is a way of contextualizing this this the, the kind of approach that Lenin took. I think it's important to note of, of what I'm saying is that this wasn't a theoretical shift in Lenin's approach, right? Like it, he wasn't trying to um, reorient or change the uh, agent in this revolutionary process. It was always the workers. They were always going to lead and conduct the revolution. This was more of a strategic decision. So then, um, however... Uh, Hamilton ignores this entirely and he says, okay, we can take those insights, we can take that strategy essentially and apply it today to right now um, in a situation where, quote, the Western working class's polit political influence had has declined. They've declined after decades of, of, um, of attack from the ruling class. So he's... Well, let, let's pause there for a moment because I think that this again shows us an, an error in Hamilton's politics because um, the heyday of the, wor the working class's political influence, he's obviously referring to the post-war period. And yes, the working class's political influence was higher there because of a of reasons that we've gone over many times before. But it wasn't like the it wasn't like this um, ideal period, which many of people, many people who write for the Morning Star and who are members of the Communist Party in this country, would see it as. Like, if you've read like critiques of the post-war periods, particularly by the likes of Mandel, like you'll see that the even though capital had to make concessions, the capital and the, uh, their state machine uh, and apparatus were able to organize themselves quite effectively to restore their own profitability and and profit hugely from that post-war period. like And the working class, yes, gained a bit and then were forced backwards. But again, it seems to me that he's part of this, like a, the aim of the, like, people like Hamilton is to rehabilitate that post-war period and to turn it into something that it wasn't, which was this period where the working class had all this influence. Yes, it, the working class organizations were more powerful then than they are now. But they weren't that powerful yes, back then. And I, I think another error that he's making is that he, I, I think you're correct. I, I think he's overestimating the height of working class power. I, he doesn't actually position what he is referring to exactly. Um, but he says the heyday of working class power or political influence rather is is gone. Okay. But um, I, I think that he conflates. Um, so the working class in, so in Russia pre-revolution was very powerful, right? They were extremely well organized and advanced, which is why they were able to lead this revolution in a very backwards country otherwise, okay? So it, Lenin didn't um, have to bring in the peasants into this whole story because the workers didn't have a lot of political influence, quote unquote. They had an enormous political influence, right? 
they 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 had generated a whole slew of different Marxist and leftist parties that were seeking to um, gain their favor, right? Like the Bolshe- Bolsheviks, Bensheviks, the SRs, like all these different or SRs. I think it was a peasants' party. Anyways, well, social re- socialist revolutionaries who were they were, they did have an influence in the proletariat, but they were predominantly okay. peasant. There you go. So, but they had a bunch of different parties seeking to like court them because they were they had self-organized soviets starting from the uh failed revolution of 1905 okay so this is not you know the lenin didn't okay so but then he's saying that okay we have an equivalent situation now where the working classes are the the level of organization level of political influence of the working classes today in the uk or in the west generally is the same as in pre-revolutionary russia that's not the case <laughs> this is not the same. yeah like if only <laughs> the 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 um, level of organization and political influence of the working class today was the same as the working classes in russia their main disadvantage was because the russian bourgeoisie and the um, autocracy had failed to develop the country they were numerically still a relatively small group of people. Well, they were very small. They were a small portion of the population relative to the peasants. So that was the main challenge facing the proletariat of, of pre-revolutionary Russia. Not Obviously not the case today. Most people are proletarian. There are no more peasants in the UK. Um, so the majority of the population in the UK, um, for instance, is working class. So then he has to... So, so this is a mistake. But then he says, um, the... Okay, so he says powerful trade unions still exist in the West, but they lack either their will or the numerical weight to apply the necessary force. And then he says the traditional working class, lorry drivers, builders, cleaners, and others cannot be underestimated. But just as London united workers and peasants, the goal of the socialist left should be to unite workers and the enlarged pool of what Marx called the, quote, reserve army of labor. Those who find themselves stuck in interminable uh, part-time jobs or left out of the labor force altogether, just as it should unite both of these with educated members of the proletariat. Okay, so so essentially he's trying to find the peasant equivalent in the UK, right? Yeah, and he's struggling <laughs> because there isn't one. Now, I'd like to break down that pa- that paragraph because I think it basically says an awful lot of what's wrong with the assumptions underwriting his essay, which is that, first of all, like he's saying that the, the traditional working class cannot be underestimated. Well, that's awfully nice of him. Um, the, but the, the, this uniting, like, first of all, He's using the wrong way to like talk. He's talking about the reserve army of labor, and he's including there those who like work work part time in interminable part time jobs. Well, then they're not in the reserve army of labor if they're working. But the reserve army of labor in, in Marx's terminology refers to like the the unemployed, yes. those who are without work at all, those who find themselves cast down into the lumpen, yes. and so. That's not that doesn't that doesn't um, include like people who are just in jobs they don't like or don't have enough hours. So he, again, like he keeps muddying the waters in an attempt to reconfigure the um, the this sort of distortion of Lenin's organizational doctrine that he's trying to put out there. Yeah, I mean, this is what he's doing is actually using the bourgeois definition of unemployed. 
um, which includes hmm. people who are in part-time jobs but would like to be in full-time jobs if they if they could find one. Um, but according to the Marxian definition, you're a worker if you are um, forced. You're, it's according to your social economic position. So if you're forced to engage in wage labor in order to survive. So if you're even if you're a part-time worker hmm. and you're surviving, you're you're a worker, <laughs> like you're a proletariat. So yeah, you, you know those that are left out of the labor force altogether. Yes, that is lumpen proletariat according to to Marx, um, but only those who are left out of the labor force for a long period of time. Those that are in and out of work mm. are still workers. Okay, so I, I think he's conflating a few a few kind of um, categories here because the reserve army of labor is actually different than the lumpen proletariat. The lumpen proletariat are those who are long term unemployed and are therefore forced to engage in um, extra uh, economic means to um, survive. So typically criminality and things like that. Yeah, borderline illegal or out yes, out exactly. Illegal. So. So like this sentence, like, or left out of the labor force altogether, you need to clarify what you mean by this. But I am assuming he's referring to the lumpen proletariat. So the long-term unemployed who are surviving by other, various other means, like who knows, right? Um, so so I, I think he needs to do this though. And he needs to kind of conflate different categories and conflate different theoretical um, approaches here because he needs to figure out what is the the peasant group in the UK and he needs to figure out the way that we can bluster the traditional working class which if you just include these folks is actually very small <laughs> so well that's again like he's buying into framing that uh, stems from like the well really like the uh, 50s and 60s period on onward the idea that the working class was no longer the majority in society because of the rise of um, the so-called white-collar jobs. And therefore, the, it, all theories needed to be reconfigured because the, the formulas of Marx no longer worked. So it strikes me that he's he's playing into that particular error as well. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me very... I, he doesn't cite Palantis. I don't know if he's read Palantis. If you're reading Palantis... Mr. Hamilton, please put down the Palantis. Um, pick up more linen. Um, but like, <laughs> it, it, what Palantis did in order to formulate his theory of politics, which is very simple, it's like a Maoist masses type approach as well, except he um, locates the new groups that the proletariat needs to ally with, with social movements and social groups around certain interests like ecology or whatever. Um but he, so so essentially, like he, what he does in order to justify this move is that he just cites that the um own the the legitimate working class is just the productive workers. So essentially, it would be like these people. It would be the lorry, the lorry drivers, the builders, cleaners in some circumstances, and other productive workers engaged in commodity production or uh, transportation. Right. So. And then you're forced because you're such a numerically small portion of the population. There's no chance for you to succeed through bourgeois uh, politics with such a small minority of the population. Okay, so this is Palantis's approach and this is this person's approach too. So he's already given up the directorship, the uh, dictatorship rather of the proletariat, right? Because like, you don't need necessarily speaking a majority of a population to have a dictatorship of the proletariat. It's just a lot easier and the, the chances of success to like to have actual socialism are, is higher, right? Because you're it demonstrates that your forces of production are more advanced. But as Lenin shows, you can still have a director, uh, a dictatorship rather of the proletariat with numerically small amount of people who are actually proletarian. You know, so 
why would we need to ally ourselves with these people in this circumstance? Um, like, it's just never clarified. But like, you know, unless he, well, as we'll see, the reason is <laughs> because he doesn't actually, he wants <laughs> to essentially pursue a peaceful road to some kind of socialistic project through uh, the state. And so, yes, of course, in that case, then you will need to reunite some kind of majoritarian uh, political alliance to achieve that. Um, you know, so we can get into that now, I guess, now that we've... Uh... Well, yes, because he, he talks about... Um, right, he talks about the the need for what he says will be a robust interventionist state. And now he does say, in fairness, that um, getting MPs into Parliament is not enough, that there will need to be sort of extra pressures from um, this alliance that he's got in mind for outside of uh, Parliament and including like um, strikes, occupations, etc. But basically it comes down to how are we going to build a parliamentary majority with pressure from the outside to ensure that... Um, this new class alliance gets its way uh, against ruling class intransigence. Um, so he says, of course, this will mean a robust interventionist state. Those that oppose this must themselves be opposed. Their juvenile presence on the left has been tolerated for far too long. The proof of this is, so to speak, in the pudding. Wow. Yeah, I feel I feel seen. How about you? Um, yes, <laughs> thank you for acknowledging me. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I was reading an essay about Lenin and the um, uh, Lenin and his book, The State and Revolution, written in 1972 by an Italian communist. Um, and the the person this person wrote um, that up until 1953, actually, any militant in a communist party who dare to cast doubt on the necessity of violence to achieve a revolution, would find himself or herself in the same position as anyone who expresses doubt about the peaceful parliamentary road to socialism, you know? So I I mm. see in this a, a repeat of this, this, the tables have turned type thing against us again, like for, you know, traditional quote-unquote communists or Leninists um, are now getting berated for a, you know, outdated <laughs> approach to revolution. I love getting told we're outdated by a man whose um, entire politics is animated by the period between 1945 and 1965. Well, yes, and uh, also who's animated by um, bourgeois theory. Like, and maybe we can get into this now. Um, you know, so, so, so maybe before, to get into it, he is saying essentially that you need to pursue a parliamentary road into power and somehow use the state as an instrument to improve the the uh, the circumstances of the peoples of the UK. Um, and then he says that, you know, he takes this Palancis, like he, he hedges his, posi his position with the Palancis approach and saying, well, we need to have constant pressure from the masses somehow. I, I don't know how he's going to organize a constant source of pressure in a situation where people need to work for wages and increasingly difficult situations. Like, you know I mean? Wow, that's why he's in favor of like basic income, isn't it? <laughs> it's astute, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, even in that case, <laughs> let's get the capitalist state to pay people to mobilize against. I have a great idea, Alex. Let's get the capitalist to uh, create a strike fund for the workers. I bet they'll do it. <laughs> exactly. Why wouldn't they agree to that? <laughs> they will never see it coming. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, they'll never see that move coming. <laughs> Hoodwink through uh, to through clever policy. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Jesus. This is such bourgeois well, gibberish. Well, it is because the thing is, um, I, why, I, whatever, if you're going to write um, a defense of the state, and especially he goes on to defend the Chinese state specifically, which is very grating to me, but we can get into it a little later. You can just write it as a social democrat. I don't, I don't care. Like, this is a, this is a very, like, very basic social democratic take. But I think he's just trying to put a bit of a um, sheen on it by, like, throwing in the word like Lenin's name into it. Like, like, I mean, it got me to read the article, so I guess it worked, but like, <laughs> but it really is nothing more than a social democratic take. And it's just another, it's essentially a Kautsky take to politics who Lenin fiercely debated and wrote polemics against because it's so contra to um, the Marxist, Marxist theory and um, revolutionary communism. So, you know, actually, like for Lenin, and when you read the State and Revolution, his whole insight was actually, uh, you know, kind of um, stemming from Marx primarily and Engels, is that the state is an instrument that cannot be reoriented towards the good and welfare of the working class. And in fact, for him, he very directly says that when the proletariat takes power and um, like uh, um, grasps the state, it will still be a bourgeois state that needs to be withered away. It, he says it will be a bourgeois state without the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie has now been abolished and suppressed, right? So for him, um, the the measure of whether or not we were getting closer to communism, so from a, this transitional period after the revolution, which he called socialism, and into communism, wasn't the increasing intervention of the state, as this person is endorsing, as Hamilton is endorsing. Actually, for him, it was the increasing withering of the state. This was what was um, the indication that we were reaching, that we were getting closer to communism, not the growth of this parasitical state that, you know, um, more grows, the more it, it, it um, becomes a fetter to the goodness and welfare of people. You know, like it, it, it has a contradictory antagonistic effect um, to the welfare of the working class. And, you know, at the end stages, like right now, for instance, we're seeing it has a um, detrimental effect to uh, capital. Like the only way the state can intervene in capital, if it were to intervene in capital and um, seek to shift the um, to to like it, it, it cannot modify the social relations on which it depends without creating a crisis is what I'm trying to say, okay? Because the state is not this instrument that stands apart from society, right? Like this person is writing as if it stands apart from society and we can grasp it as a, as a tool, as an instrument. This is the same mistake that Palantis makes, same mistake that a lot of different Marxists make. But the state emerges from a set of social relations and those social relations are capitalist social relations. They're defined by the law of value, right? And, it, and so if you abolish those social relations, the state will also be abolished because it, it it's formed from that. Like it doesn't, you can't separate it out from the social relations which create our reality, right? So, you know, like, so for, for the Leninist approach, you have first the revolution and then Lenin has a bunch of different actual specific things he wants to see happen, right? Which actually is the antithesis to bourgeois uh, parliaments. He's he for instance he seeks a um a working not a parliamentary body, 
which is executive and legislative at the same time, and which therefore the representatives have to work, have to execute their own laws, and have to themselves test the results in real life and account directly to their constituents who can recall them at any time, right? So Taking is this inspiration from the example of the Paris Commune. That's exactly right. And in fact, the reason why he um, he actually earlier on in his uh, intellectual thought, he looked at the Paris Commune as um, no more than an extreme form of bourgeois democratism. But when he saw the Soviets emerge, um, this is what um, evolved his political theory to the pinnacle of his political thought, which I think is contained in the State and Revolution. And then he started seeing the direct, uh, dicta- sorry, the dictatorship of the proletariat not as a dictatorship of the party, but like um, like what he's what he what we read and what we learn about from the Paris Commune, right? And so so this realization for him came after he saw uh, what the workers were able to do, right? They self organized, they were self um, they were self managing, they were self governing. So he was like, okay, how can we bring this? To a to to, to a, um, a higher level of abstraction, so to the level of the of the state and the world, right? And so this was his insight. So it, it, what what this person is outlining here is completely contradictory to it's, it's completely contradictory to Lenin is, um, Lenin's. Uh, well, it's view got of the nothing state. to do with Lenin. I mean, well, no, it, uh, let's be honest. Like he he brings Lenin's name in, and he takes some incredibly selective and I would argue almost misquotes Lenin on numerous occasions. Like he throws in the line that um, the of the state is nothing but a machine for the oppression of one class by another, which is of course one of Lenin's most astute observations. And yet he follows that up with a sentence saying the opposite, which is yet in a world dominated by capitalist states with limitless capacity for violence, revolution does not mean retreating from this terrain. So, what does that actually mean? What it means is, well, let's see if we can get hold of a capitalist state ourselves. That's basically it. And also, I would argue that the the idea that the capitalist states have limitless capacity for violence is untrue. The capacity for violence of the capitalist state is dependent upon the class relations within the capitalist state. When the working class decide thus far and no further, the capitalist state's ability to do violence at home or abroad is severely limited and reined in, if not destroyed entirely, as the Russian Revolution proved. Exactly. So to to your first point, he's repeating um, Kautsky's position. Who Kautsky was still a Marxist, right? But he started to see the con. Well, you know, we, we can argue later on, like what he became. But he 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 saw in contra to Lenin that the the con the conquest of state power by winning a majority in parliament. Um, what he was seeking to raise. Um, parliament to the rank of master of government to, because he was thinking, Kautsky thought, that um, if you could control this political arena, quote unquote, that is separate from everything else, that is somehow uh, elevated above everything else, then you just put better people in charge and you can change the nature of the state in this way, right? And so he's he's saying all the things the state failed to do and he thinks that if we could just get I don't know, a better state, then you would do better things. This is not completely untrue. It's not going to happen this way. This is a wrong thing of looking at it. I agree that um, we don't... Yeah, yes. I just to say that, the, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the, the idea that parliaments stand above and beyond the existing network of class relations is ridiculous. I mean, it's it, it's something that you could 
you could all, you, if not excuse it, then you can understand why it would be a point of view in like late 19th century Germany, where the vote was given to working class men for the very first time. But like, we've had 130 odd years now, where at least the bulk of working class men have been given the vote. And we've had nearly 100 years where everybody's been given the vote. And if nothing else, then parliament exists completely within the uh within the set of social relations in which the broader state machine sits the idea that it is above and beyond that should really have been relegated to a historical footnote by now because the last even the even the diaries of like labor cabinet ministers who the morning star loves like tony ban people like that show clearly that exactly how limited a vehicle for proletarian politics, capitalist um, capitalist democracies, capitalist parliaments really are. They are bourgeois institutions through and through, and they exist to uphold and recreate bourgeois social relations, even if the Social Democratic Party is the one nominally in charge of it. I mean, the idea that this is still being recapitulated now after a century is just it's ridiculous that they're still trying to rake this thing up. What he's doing is as I said is that he's essentially just giving us a social democratic take for some reason bringing in Lenin. Why don't you just bring in Kautsky? <laughs> like, well, he doesn't sell as well. <laughs> the thing is like you you're he, he I can I think he kind of directly says this. He's like, you know, this will mean a robust interventionist state. Okay, what does it mean when you endorse the state? Okay, you're you're essentially you're just endor endorsing the continuing continuation of capitalist social relations. So sometimes there are periods in history where that is all the working class can really achieve. They can achieve reforms, and it can achieve this through process of class struggle, right? Which which pushes the bourgeoisie to make certain reforms, and sometimes the bourgeoisie will make preemptive reforms actually to stem working class pressure. So this also happens. But in the end, this process of class struggle within the ca the context of capitalism will always resolve in the favor of capital. Okay, you're not going to go anywhere beyond that. This, you're not changing the nature of the state in this process. The state is still being used in order to maintain those class relations. So I don't, you know, I don't think he makes any pretensions for see, seeking to go any further than that. But that's just what he's seeking to achieve. So I don't know why this is being printed in a communist newspaper. Like because the Morning Star <laughs> and the, the Associated Communist Party are no more communist than the Labour Party is. You know, it it really bothers me because I feel like no one believes, like Lenin did in the ability of people to self-govern, self-organize, and run their their lives for themselves. This is why Lenin wanted to abolish the state, because this saw he saw the state as anti-democratic in nature. Like, his, his critique of the state, his critique of parliament, wasn't some kind of emotional, like, ad hominem. You know, like, um, I don't know, like like saying that it was degenerate or saying that it was just to fool the people or it was invented well, consciously. He, it wasn't it wasn't bakunin you know yeah. he wasn't like just ranting and raving about you know the so the great sovereign individual or anything like this was he was analyzing it as a, the the state and its parliamentary institutions and its bureaucracies as being crucial for the reproduction of bourgeois social relations and that's the uh, the biggest part of the reason why it had to be why it had to be smashed because the longer if you keep it around then even if you've got the nice people running it they're still recreating those social relations well exactly like you're you're still not achieving what the the communist goal is which is a 
proletarian democracy, right, which he saw in the democracy of the Soviets, people who were self-organized, self-governed, who answered directly to the constituents, who themselves had to live with the effects of their policies that they endorsed, right, because they were at the same level of everyone else, unlike the 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 politicians that we have in office right now. Hmm. Um, and and to it was like it, it wasn't like a shift of power from one group of people to another. It was a qualitative change in the way that power is is wielded and the way in which society is run, you know? So it, it was it was it, it like it was completely different than what had happened before, right? Like it was it was a revolution, right? So so you know, this is not, you know, I, I think he's saying essentially that there's no hope for revolution right now. So we just need to work with what we have. Um and okay, whatever. Like you can make this argument as a social democratic. I don't care. But like I just every single person will make this argument. <laughs> this is very yeah. it's like on the left and right, everyone's saying this because no one really believes in people's ability. No one has the um the the point of view anymore that, you know, rational beings are, you know, this liberal premise that all human beings are born with with reason and conscious and should be treated as such. And what does this mean? It means that they shouldn't be submitted to the diktats of a of a state that imposes um, policies on them without their 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 will, their their consent. Right. Like the Chinese state does in a very draconian authoritarian way. And he brushes off the, the authoritarianism of China and says, you know, oh, while we can disagree with their authoritarianism, it provides us a powerful economic alternative to neoliberal capitalism. Well, well let's pause there for a moment because that we've talked about this before, but it's worth revisiting. First of all, let's, I mean, we, we should really do a whole series of programs on just the term what <laughs> neoliberal actually means because it's probably the most misused word in the language. But, okay, so leaving aside the question of authoritarianism for now, let's take the latter part of that sentence and examine it. This provides us with a powerful economic alternative to neoliberal capitalism. False claim, completely. Because as not just um, yeah, uh, you know renegade Maoists or Trotskyists have shown, but like a lot of like even bourgeois economists will be able to uh, will have shown over the last forty or so years that that China and uh, the Chinese Communist Party rulers of China has been absolutely crucial for this entire period of capitalism to even exist. Yeah. The opening up of the Chinese market for the exploitation of Chinese workers by uh, the Deng Xiaoping period is absolutely crucial for this period that he identifies as neoliberal capitalism. It couldn't have happened without the opening up of the Chinese markets. Yeah. Not yeah. in the same way anyway, not, and not has been as successful. The, it couldn't, the American imperialism was bailed out in 2008 by the Chinese government mm -hmm. because it was in the interests of the Chinese capitalist class to keep America open as a market for products manufactured in China. Mm -hmm. So this idea that it is an alternative is frankly, it's garbage. And the, 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 I'm not surprised that the, you know, the half-witted morons in the morning star would run something like this because they see a red flag, they go all weak at the knees and they start thinking of the glorious period of the 60s or something. Um, but the, the China is completely integral to the way that the modern global capitalist economy works. It is not an alternative. It is within that set of relations completely. And the only people who apparently don't understand that 
uh, idiots on the right and idiots on the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the Chinese question, it, you know, you hear it's impossible to do socialism in one country, but you know, the question is, can we do social democracy in one country? You know, like would we have social democracy as we know it today without the USSR, and then you know after that without China? Yeah, like this is not um, like the the this distinguish like distinguishing the different capitalisms or whatever within the different nation states as if they're like different species or something you know these things are all connected like we can we have social democracy without exploitation of the third world you know these these things well we couldn't back in the day <laughs> I, I don't know if we can we can still now like um, the uk is is still a, a dominant imperialist power the usa is canada is like we we have our own uh, imperial export um, exploits in in um, South America and most notably with different mining companies, so you know like what are you endorsing here is like more holistically speaking like for those of us who, or for those who are going to down a social democratic route especially at this point in history like you really have to think about what you are endorsing overall from a holistic sense, right? And it it's not it it gets less and less appealing as you expand your analysis. <laughs> You know, and you understand the contingencies that had to exist actually in the earlier period of social democracy for for that arrangement to exist to begin with. But, you know, even if I'm going to take him at his word and say, well, you know, we can debate the authoritarianism. I think the authoritarianism and the more authoritarian a state is, you know, I don't think people realize that, like how libertarian Lenin really was. Like he was all about human freedom. Like he, he loved human freedom. Was, that was his goal. Like even in his um practice, like I think people have this conception of Lenin that he was this like Stalin-like authoritarian. But um and you know perhaps early some parts some aspects of him were like that. But overall, like he really was quite libertarian with the way in which he did his politics in which he wrote. Like he was truly seeking to enable people to make decisions for their own lives in cooperation with their peers and he was trying to make that circumstance possible for them and even for instance like when he was first pitching um uh taking over the um well essentially like queuing the government the interim government a provisional government rather to give power to the soviets um two members of the central committee of the bolsheviks voted against him Right. I think it was uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev. That's right. Yes. And so then they immediately went and started publicating, uh, publishing their dissent to Lenin's decision. Like this whole quote unquote coup was not a secret. It was widely known throughout the cities that the Bolsheviks were planning to take over the government. Like (laughs) it was like no secret at all. Like, you know, because it was it had to come. It had to, you know, um, it had to, to happen with the consent of the masses. Right. Or like with the support of the masses or else it wouldn't have been possible. But they were openly going out and stating their dissent as against Lenin's. Um, well, not his decision, but his 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 motion here. Um, and he let them. He didn't stop them. He didn't say, you can't say this. Like he didn't say, oh, party discipline, blah, blah, blah. Like they went out and did their thing and they were not convincing to the people. And the the coup was successful. The quote unquote coup was successful, for lack of a better word. Um, and the revolution then worked great. So, you know, so like I, I actually do take, I take a lot of issue with the authoritarianism of the Chinese state. You know, as I think it is a little exaggerated in in our Western, especially I, th- I do think Western states are very authoritarian, but I, I do take issue with that. I think it's it's extremely oppressive, and I don't think that um, it's okay to oppress and force people to do things that they just don't want to do and that don't make sense. 
I think it's actually extremely anti-human to do that. I think human beings are born free. Everywhere they live in chains, but they are born free. And it's 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 destructive to their nature. It's destructive to human beings to be under a situation where they are not free. And you can see this when people like turn and when they can't resist, when they can't organize against this um, oppression, oppression, they start to um, destroy themselves, you know, with drugs, with drinking, with emotional issues, with, you know, they destroy their relationships, like re- relationships break down, all these different things. So it, it's not a small thing at all. Like, I don't think like it's a fair oh, I get a bit more state provision, but if, in exchange for like enormous authoritarianism, like I, I don't think that's a fair um, deal. Like, I, I, why should we accept this? Like, why? And, you know, my question, I guess, finally for this whole thing is why should I accept this? Like this mode of of politics? Like, what are you exactly you promising me? Like a real lockdown? Like, this is what you hope would happen? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's like a, a return to the 1960s. Like, what exactly is the goal here? Like, I don't know. It's weird. It's just like a really weird piece to be printed in a communist paper, I think. I don't know. Well, it just, it's, it's very, <laughs> it's because it's a social democratic paper. That's, yeah. The Morning Star is a social democratic newspaper. It hasn't been a revolutionary communist newspaper since probably the 1930s. And that's the fate of all, as we've discussed before, that's what all of the communist parties, the legacy communist parties are of the West now are, like the CPUSA. Like he mentions the CPUSA earlier on in the essay as being like crucial to forcing concessions from Roosevelt. And that's true. Then as we've covered when we were talking about um, the McCarthyist period, the CPUSA basically converted itself into a vote Democrat operation and helped in the pro- and helped in that process destroy itself. And yeah. just the CPGB, as was, uh, destroyed itself by becoming an appendage of the Labour Party. And this is why the Morning Star runs social democratic drivel constantly, because like all of their politics basically comes down to is like, well, can't we go back to um, welfare capitalism? But as you were correctly pointing out, this, the, the, the contradictions within welfare capitalism in Britain are as a Britain as an imperialist power, like was built its welfare capitalist period on increased exploitation of the domestic working class, uh, for one, and also um, the pillaging of British colonies across the world. Uh, that's empirically proven. If you read the book by uh, in um, the City by Norfield, like he very well establishes that connection. And same with France, certainly the same with the United States. So if we're, if we're aiming to rebuild welfare capitalism in Britain or social democracy or whatever the hell you want to put, however the hell you want to term it, are we then going to say what? That um, um, we're going to uh, do it by, again, exploiting British imperialist connections to fund reforms at home? Are we going to do that? Are we going to increase the exploitation of the working class at home? Now, the Communist Party in this country couples this uh, welfare capitalist reformism of its program with this utopian pacifism, saying, oh, well, we should uh, a left government should pr- pursue a program of peace, a program of peace under capitalism, a program of peace when you're wanting to run the state machine of, an imper- of a major imperialist power, what you're just going to stop uh, engaging in imperialism, and then when they ruling, what do you expect the ruling class is going to do with that? What do you think they're going to do? Uh, and so, what 
so you have this this is completely reactionary utopianism to believe that you could rebuild welfare capitalism, that you could pursue some pacifist foreign policy, and you could hold this up by a constant state of mobilization of the working class or whatever combination of classes you want to pretend you can build. This is nonsense. This is a non-starter, and it doesn't make any sense because all the necessary things that were there in 1945 to build the period that Hamilton and people like him want to get back to so much, it's all gone now. Yeah, well, And yet, perversely, mm -hmm. we've never been in a better position where the majority of the working class is potentially capable of self-governing in terms of literacy, numeracy, etc., and ability to actually understand things, we're in a much better position than we were 70 years ago. Well, the thing is that, like, so so unlike the capitalists, um, the capitalists grew up as a revolutionary class, a very cultured group of, group of people, and they grew up with an experience of self-governance and self-rule. And there was always this very, well, you know, maybe much less so now in this period of imperialism, but in the earlier parts of the revolutionary bourgeoisie, there was also always prominent strands of libertarianism. Um, and Rousseau was kind of the pinnacle of this, you know. And um, but the, the problem facing the proletariat is that the proletariat is not taught to rule, right? They are not formed to rule themselves. They are not brought to a high level of culture. They are consciously put down right and taught to obey and 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 taught to follow arbitrary discipline from the boss right this is what they're trained to do from a very young age working class kids right and you know excuse me um a lot of people will speak to this right like ways in which for instance creative children or children who are a bit more rebellious or don't follow the rules like are are punished for that instead of finding ways of redirecting their energies into a pro-social uh, method, they're punished, right? Because that's not the goal of schooling, for instance, under capitalist society. So the the role, one of the primary roles of the party and the re revolutionary process, as Lenin understood, even as early as what is to be done, is to teach people to bring to to find those uh, natural leaders in the working class that would otherwise be completely disregarded in bourgeois society, and bring them up to a, to a higher level of, of of culture, train them as leaders. Um, have them exercise their leadership skills within the, the proletariat, but also bring up the entire proletariat to learn how to rule, to learn how to self-govern. And, you know, this used to happen much more in the trade unions even. You know, there used to be, within trade union struggles, there was more of a chance for workers to gain these skills and to exercise various skills of self-governance, uh, collaboration, all these different things. And like, you know, facing off against a foe and winning against that foe. Like it, it, trade unionism is very useful for this for this kind of exercise. But, you know, so it, but if you're just telling people, well, the state isn't perfect, but it's all we've got. Like you're essentially saying, well, it's, there's no point in me trying to raise the proletariat to a level where they can rule themselves um, and, and, and govern their own society. That's essentially what you're saying. Like, there's no point in even trying because for like why the, the state is violent. The state is not as violent. Like, the level of violence that the bourgeoisie meets out to the working class is actually much less than before. So, and this is because, like, um, of the reforms that they were forced to make to the legal system over, like, many decades of struggle. Like, so, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, yes, of, of course, like, the this society is, like, you know, there's, like, a lot of violence, but, like, the more the working class organizes as well, the less able the bourgeoisie will be able to meet out this violence, 
you know, and and the more of a reaction their violence will get when it is meted out. So I know it's just a very undialectical way of looking at things. And it it just reorients attention away from the workers themselves as individuals, as a class, as people who can rule themselves and um, and who should, in fact, rule themselves as rational, conscious beings, of course, um, towards, you know, essentially a bunch of politicians. It, it puts all the attention towards them, either making sure that they're better people or you make keeping them accountable through like whatever the masses. So I don't know. I, get, I think this is actually very anti-Leninist. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like very contra what Lenin was trying to do right from the beginning of his intellectual career, I would say. Like he he changed his view of the party as he saw the, the Soviets arise um, and he saw what the Soviets meant, you know, to to what the Soviets represented in terms of a proletarian democracy. Which you saw the future of it in uh, embedded in those in the in the Soviets, okay? But he was always seeking to um, elevate the workers to a point where they could rule themselves. And originally, it was through the uh, instrument of the party, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like the state, it's not gonna. I don't know. The state in and of itself is not. It's it's even if you are for instance um able to pre- like as we were in the social democratic period you're able to pressure the state to make some concessions this is at the cost of um you know it's at the cost of either other segments of the working class within society so for instance it might be relegated to some racial group or some gender group for instance or it's the cost is relegated to some other um nation state to some other group of proletarians in some other nation state so, you know, like, if this is all you can do, if this is the best that's possible, like, perhaps these trade-offs make sense in a certain circumstance. But, you know, if you're going to be... Lenin, if for Lenin, that was never satisfying for him. Never. <laughs> like, he's always like, revolution... Or, like, you know, it was always like, revolution is the goal. Like, he was always calling for revolution. He always had that revolutionary boldness. Like, he didn't... It didn't stop him from engaging in in, in politics writ large and engaging in, in the parliament and, you know, whatever... Um, but like it was always these always always tools and he was never satisfied with whatever he got right like he always wanted he always had this like you know obsessive um, focus on revolution and um, the direct the dictatorship of the proletariat and that's why he was successful so we need someone like that today or some some groups of people like that so I just think it's sad that like... Well, I mean, it's a useless reactionary utopianism pointing either towards welfare capitalism or towards like the Chinese model because we can't... We, as a um, late capitalist economy, one of the first capitalist nations, we can't get to a Chinese model because that's predicated upon a earlier and more productive form of capitalism. So the only way we would, the only thing we would get is some sort of bourgeois Bonapartism, where everywhere which is used to force down the wages of the working class to the point where it's profitable to have um, more um, productive industries in the country again. So, so like this isn't going anywhere. This whole politics just isn't going anywhere. It offers no way out for the working class whatsoever. Yeah, and I, I think. It really underestimates and disregards the effect, even though he mentions the USSR throughout this essay. Um, you know, you can see the shift that the bourgeoisie undergoes after 1917. And suddenly their ideas of democracy become a bit more all-encompassing and flexible. 
And suddenly they think, okay, maybe we should, maybe the workers should be involved in democracy because they got really scared by that. I've said this so many times. They they got terrified by the revolution. And, um, you know, you can see, for, for instance, like you can look at the diaries of uh, Roosevelt, who would write about how we need to do the, the, the New Deal to forestall a revolution in America. Right. For the so so what what is going to compel and even then like even with all of this stuff in place like you had the revolution in Russia you had the post war boom you had all these different things happening the green revolution so in agriculture after 1945 you know even at that point like you you didn't even get full like franchise for everyone in most countries until after World War II it took that long just to get everyone the vote all right. And, um, you know, even in Switzerland, for instance, the women didn't have the vote until 1971. <laughs> so like, you know, it's it's um, the, the gains when you look at it really are quite modest and it took an enormous historical event for us to get them. But they really are quite modest compared to what was actually possible. And for an indication of what is possible, you can see the uh, the enormous progress that a country like Cuba made or the Soviet Union made under the, the circumstance of a planned economy, right? So, so really, it puts things into perspective in a way that makes it much less appetizing. And you know, and really, it really comes down to the fact that it was it this thing happened at all because there was this guy Lenin who wanted to do our, who was determined to <laughs> to um, see the victory of the working class in Russia. Right. And and have that revolution. So so we're not we're, I think actually like I think he's thinking that we can go back to this period, you know, post World War Two. But actually, I actually think that we're closer to a pre-revolutionary circumstance now where where, you know, once U.S. hegemony is over, we're going to go back to a multipolar world of different imperial powers competing against one another. And we're going to be seeing, much like the workers saw pre-1917, that the gains are extremely modest. Like, you really can't get much through trade unionism. You really can't get much through parliamentary uh, pressure, right? Like, um, and I think we're already kind of seeing it in a large large extent. Like, democracy is a, is a sham. Like, mm. <laughs> there is no real democracy in, in these countries anymore, not in Canada. No, that's yeah. why the rulers are all so ridiculous. Because exactly. they don't they don't have to do anything serious. There's no capacity for them to do anything serious other than administer things as they are for the bourgeoisie. I mean, we saw this even with like, I mean, this week you and I have already discussed the Great Reset book. If nothing, if nothing else will show you the bankruptcy of the modern bourgeoisie, that will, because it, all they're doing is desperately trying to keep the lights on of their own failing and fading model. And the other thing I would just uh, add about Lenin's Lenin's genius, true genius, is the fact that he was the one of the few people, I would argue also along with Trotsky in 1917, who understood the exact way to essentially blow up bourgeois power in Russia, to actually point a movement led by the working class at the current existing rather fragile bourgeois state that was run by the provisional government of Kerensky and supported by the Mensheviks and social revolutionaries by making the, the basic demand peace, bread and land. He made free demand. They were making free demands that were almost universally popular among the proletariat and the peasantry as well, but which the bourgeois state was completely incapable of addressing. They couldn't have peace 
with um, because that would mean turning their back on their alliance with the imperialist powers of Britain and France and the United States. They couldn't redistribute the land because they couldn't attack the privileges of the landowners, and they couldn't provide bread because, again, that would involve attacking the privileges of the landowners and the way in which the property was structured. And therefore, it was the exact right combination of things at the exact right time with the exact right vehicle in the form of the Bolshevik Party in leading the working class through the Soviets to blow up that structure. And one of the things that actually is needed now is somebody to do that work to work out the way in which you blow up the bourgeois power in these fading late capitalist states in the West. How do you do that? How do you address a series of demands that will mobilize the proletariat in a way that will get that will take them towards the point where they can rule? And not only that, do so in a way that in which the bourgeois state and bourgeois society cannot possibly respond to it without destroying the basis of their own power and therefore cannot respond to it. That's yeah. Lenin's absolute genius. And that's what none of these characters who float around the so-called communist parties actually wants to look at. They'll bring out Lenin, like, like the old um, trade union leaders and social democratic leaders used to wave the red flag and bring out some Lenin for May Day marches. Like for people like Hamilton, Lenin is just something to be brought out when you want to sound radical. That's all. But yeah. the actual lessons of Lenin's work and life are never looked at by these people. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, um, you know, it, it, I think also people need to be, I mean, so so I think my wish list of things that I would like to see coming out of Marxist analysis is a look at other countries, other proletarian movements and like China and like maybe Iran and all these other countries that we don't hear a lot about in the West to kind of track their progress as well. And um, yeah, kind of, you know, think about what it would mean for a revolution to happen in one of these countries. Like what if it happens in a small European country, for instance, or what might it mean for the proletariat if the EU uh, breaks down like you know these kinds of questions i think are of a very or you know who are the productive workers in today's world that we sh we should focus on strategically speaking like these questions are kind of like just an intellectual curiosity if you don't actually have a party right but i think that these are the more important theoretical issues that should be thought through for political scientists of a marxist orientation in my opinion um and, you know, so so I think I think constantly going over this idea, like, how can we revive social democracy? You know, listen, like, I, like, why are we going to go through this again? Like, we've already had this experiment a thousand times. We know how it's going to go. <laughs> hmm. Well, why not, while we're at it, try and rev revive um, the guilds and the journeymen? Why not do that as well? You know, let's go back to an earlier form of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I don't know. I, yeah, it's tough. Like, I just think that these people don't really see a big problem with, like, I don't think they understand how bad the state is. And I think when you realize what a, a fiasco the quote unquote pandemic was and the lockdowns and the vaccination campaign, I mean, it, it, it it's proven to me that this, the state is, act, is, is actually destructive. I want like, less of the state <laughs> involved in my life. I want more ability to manage resources on my own and um, decide how they're used. I don't trust these bureaucrats to make good decisions um, for people. They don't have to live with the decisions that they make. So they can make any decision and we don't know why they make them. Like, so I don't know, an interventionist state would just be more of that, like <laughs> more of these morons making decisions for me and my loved one's lives 
which makes no sense to me that they're not accountable to anyone, like, because they don't, they're not democratically elected, most of the bureaucrats that run our society. Um, and um, they they have no reason to be, um, to, to make policies or to deploy policies that are actually good because, you know, like, for instance, the public health doctors that run the public health units in Canada are paid almost 400 grand a year. Like, they're wealthy people. Like, they don't, <laughs> they live I love a lot of money of- <laughs> to be a completely useless failure. Yeah, so it's just not, you know, it, it, the state is not a good thing. It's it's really not a good thing. Like, so I could see some value in, for instance, figuring out ways of democratizing or pulling, you know, trying to figure out ways of, of pulling back some aspects of management and organization back into the hands of the proletariat. But again, this is maybe more of a trade unionist um, question. Um, and, you know, there's always the, the challenge of the fact that the state will reorient to um, mitigate whatever um, you're able to claw away, right? As they have been doing since um, the franchise was granted to people. So I don't know, it, 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 like it just leads you back to Lenin and back to the other, the necessity for revolution. And it's it's not an easy, that's, it's just not, I mean, I guess that's why people don't want to go there because it's, it's a really hard thing to address and think about and, <laughs> you know, acknowledge. But I, I really think that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm well, convinced. That's, that's the work now, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Like because I the I mean to return to where we started it was the beginning of this guy's essay. Like he's talking about the failure of um, Corbyn and Sanders. Now the the question that I would actually like to put to somebody who still thinks a Corbyn type project is possible is what would success have looked like? Yeah. There. What would success have looked like for a Jeremy Corbyn premiership? What would success have looked like for a Bernie Sanders presidency? And I know people will say there's certain policy priorities there, but given everything that we know about how hysterical the ruling class got, even at the hint of like mild social democracy, like you ought to ask, well, what what is the judgment of success? Because um, the one of the biggest problems for that type of politics is that this current capitalist setup can only work in a certain way. There's not a lot of flexibility in it for the uh, for a variety of reasons for the kind of reforms we saw 70 years ago. Yeah, it's got a lot weaker and a lot more fragile, and it only basically manages to carry on because of a lack of challenge from the proletariat. And trying to rebuild um, welfare capitalism isn't going to do what we need to do, which is to rebuild the prolet- proletarian power to the point where the working class can we can start thinking about. A replacement of the ruling class, a rip, uh, the uh, the smashing of the state, a move to the administration of things. Well, I you know? think that looking reform, nostalgia like, doesn't help us. No, nostalgia is not helpful, or seeking champions in the ruling class is not helpful either. Yes, um, finding a Bonaparte isn't a good idea. Yeah, or finding like a friendlier fragment of the capitalist class, like you're mm. not going to find one. Like, um. I think that, yeah, like fighting for reforms, defending democracy, defending liberal rights are very good. I I think this is all very good. But this is energy that will be dissipated and ultimately wasted if there's no revolutionary party to um, consolidate the um, experience of that and, and keep on directing it in a revolutionary perspective. And you always need to have that revolutionary boldness. It's a difficult thing to keep to keep in your mind at the same time or keep in your political practice, you know, like 
Um, and I think Lenin kind of failed at, at certain times points in his career, in his political career, to balance these two things out. Like, for instance, he he writes regretting um, not um, participating in the uh, the first elections for the the provisional the first provisional government. That's uh, mm. one of the these first elections. Duma. Yes, exactly. The first Duma. So, you know, but he said, you know, ultimately he says it's not, it wasn't a big deal in the end. And I guess he was right. (laughs) 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 But um, yeah, so I don't know. It's not an easy thing, but, you know, politics isn't easy. It's not, it's not easy. And, um, you know, there is no high road to, to science. And like, I I think that's, you know, like politics used to, like, I think taking, you know, you know, a party of professional revolutionaries and dedicated intelligentsia as used to exist in various communist parties in the world and still exist to some extent, although they're all crap, but like um, (laughs) it used to exist. Like, I think this is a a real, I think that really does need to exist. Like it it really is quite necessary, but I don't know where it definitely is not on the horizon. So I guess people will ask themselves, well, what can I do in the interim? And yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think, I don't think actually, though, that this approach is the best thing you can do in the interim, accepting more intervention from a big state. Like, I I don't agree with that. Like, uh, in the interim, what you can do, I suppose, is organize amongst your workers, for instance, um, and push it back against actually interventions by the state and demand more control, demand that your resources be under your control more directly. Um, because more intervention from the state, yeah, they're going to intervene for you. Like, but I mean, they're going to intervene, but not in your benefit. So, it's like a struggle, as Simon Clark said, in and against the state in the interim. I would say, but mm. I mean, who knows? I might be wrong. But it's it's not like I don't know. It's it's a tough. I think it is a really tough thing to. Um, maybe this is why this essay kind of was born because <laughs> you're, you're you're struggling to like actually do something which has a viable direction for people, political direction. And um, in the absence of a party, in the absence of a revolutionary movement, you are kind of left flailing. Um, but um, I don't know. You can do something. Like, I don't know. I, I still go to protests and stuff. I'm still trying to fight the vaccine mandate where I work. But <laughs> I know that these uh, efforts are, you know, ultimately meaningless, but <laughs> important in the moment. <laughs> well, I'd say that... Um... A lot of stuff might seem meaningless when done uh, because it doesn't seem to have any impact. But I would argue that without the sizable demonstrations in Britain and the the Johnson administration wouldn't have um, backtracked on its um, attempt to impose more restrictions. It certainly affected conservative MPs. It even affected some of the slightly more intelligent Labour MPs. So, So even when it seems fruitless, like... The anti-war movement, to me, standing uh, was as the as the attack on Iraq began in two thousand and three. I felt like it had all been a colossal waste of time. It's like, well, what the fuck was the point? It's gone ahead, um, yeah. and it didn't achieve the thing that I, we many of us wanted it to achieve, which is stopping that war. But on the other hand, it did essentially kill the, completely the career of Tony Blair, for instance, and a lot of people who were associated with him to the point where. They would love to bring somebody like that back, but they couldn't. They would have loved to invade um, uh, Syria directly using actual troops on the ground, and they haven't been able to do so. So even where the effect is limited and, like, you feel like it's been a wasted time, like, it can still have a much 
more of an impact than you first imagine, even though it's important not to fool yourself about what that impact is. It's also equally important to be a real, have a realistic assessment and not get easily demoralized. Yeah, I would say the best thing we can do right now, um, or you know, many of us can do right now, I suppose, is is make kind of a momentary decision about the politics of the day. So it might be actually that um, not um, participating in an election, like so not voting or whatever, is is the right decision at that point, but might be not the right decision, depending on the circumstances, right? Like I, I didn't, I spoiled my ballot last federal election for Canada, for instance, because I didn't see, I didn't, um, all the parties were offering equal harm. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't think there was a point, but if I could see some kind of road through which perhaps harm could be minimized, um, maybe I would vote in that circumstance. But it's, you have to do kind of like a in the moment analysis. But I think that this is doesn't translate to a long term political strategy like this person, like Hamilton is is endorsing here. Um, yeah. it, it, like I would never make this a long term strategy, this kind of like defensive positioning that I'm engaged in right now, because that's really what it is. It's just a defensive. No, it's uh, it's the posture. defensive posture that's been necessitated by a very low period in the class struggles coming out of a period of extreme reaction. Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I think the answer is, um, yeah, I mean, I think the bigger problem is right now is that there is a a very low level of class organization. The trade unions are not doing their job anymore in terms of generating that trade union consciousness, which is a precursor to a broader class consciousness, which is kind of formed and through the party. Um and so we're kind of in a holding pattern now. And the thing is, like Lenin was too, like the Revo Russian revolutionaries were also in this position earlier on. Um, you know, when they started their thing, they were just a bunch of like, you know, five like people reading Marx, right? So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's, um, I just really don't think the answer is social democracy and asking the state to be more interventional, um, especially not in this moment, right? Maybe in 10 years or something or five years or whatever, Maybe that will make more sense. But in this moment, I think it's very clear to me that the more intervention by the state at this point will just like, like, for instance, like in Canada, yes, we've had huge, huge intervention by the state uh, to, um, to, to apply these like protocols. But what does it mean? It, it just meant actually that people have seen a retrenchment of their access to healthcare. We have a public healthcare system here. And there's been a retrenchment of access to public healthcare in order to protect it, quote unquote, right? So this is the kind of contradictory effect that state intervention has had, right? So now people can't see their doctors in person anymore. It's very hard to, for them to do so, or they, they're scared that they and they won't go see their doctor. So in the circumstance of this pandemic, I think no state intervention would have been preferable in Canada, at least than what we had. It would have actually yielded less harm <laughs> overall, right? But, you know, it's not the perfect answer, but I don't see in this circumstance, given the class forces in play, I don't see any way the state could have intervened in the way that would have helped. And I don't know why Hamilton thinks in this, in the class circumstance in the UK, maybe things are different. I don't know why he thinks that the state would intervene in a way that would be helpful to the UK proletariat. It just seems to me like it's just not, the balance isn't there to to um to to create a moment where there is some kind of gain for the working class even though ultimately it will be resolved in the favor of capital well just to draw on your example of healthcare we've ended up with people actually accessing healthcare far less over the last yeah. two years 
which is now being paid off with um, a large number of excess deaths from um, heart disease, cancer, etc., from people who didn't seek medical attention earlier. And that, so exactly. it's actually yeah. for all the uh, this the talk amongst people who support social democracy of oh, this is a turning point. The state can't possibly deny the importance of healthcare now. Well, no, thanks to the the left in Britain going along with lockdowns and going along with essentially healthcare rationing and not doing what they should have done from the start, which is just make it entirely about um, healthcare access. Uh, which had declined over the pe- previous, not just 10 years, but 20 years, by just screaming for restrictions and screaming for a state action, state action. Well, congratulations, idiots. You got your state action. Mm. Now yeah. we're facing a state action where they not only have done nothing to actually elevate the capacity in the healthcare system, they're now still looking to fire thousands upon thousands of healthcare workers who remain unvaccinated by April of next year. So congratulations, yeah. idiots. Because yeah. you don't understand that the state can look very busy and be very interventionist, um, because because it's doing that on the power on the behalf of capital. Yeah, and the state yeah. is always interventionist under capitalism. There's never, but there's not been a period in British capitalism from like the early 19th century onwards where the state has not been playing a hugely active role in the economy, either shaping and disciplining the labor force or creating the conditions for capital accumulation. There's never been a period where the state hasn't been interventionist. Like these idiot social democrats, they just swallow the line from Thatcher and Reagan like we need to make a smaller state. They never did. They just refocused its area to refocus its areas of activity to, again, discipline the labor force and create more opportunities for um, restoration of a higher rate of profit via increased exploitation of labor. Like, so the capitalist state is constantly intervening. It's very active all the time. It's just not on behalf of our class. Yeah. And that's the only way it's going to be. Yeah. The yeah. period of 45 to 65 was the exception, not the rule. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this last sentence he leaves us with, like, then as now, the state is not a perfect solution. It's just the only one we have. Like, I just think that this orientation, like, we can say, okay, this is all that's possible given the class forces. But to say that this is all we have, that's not, that's never all we have, right? Like, it's, that's not, I don't know. Like, like, Len- like for instance, Lenin would never be like, for instance, like when he's, I read an article about, um, written in, uh, like a working, like, I think, uh, a worker's magazine or something, uh, called The Militant. And they were talking about abortion laws in the U.S. And they were just citing Lenin as saying that, um, you know, petty bourgeois couples, like, they're always, you know, so despaired about the future. And so they want to keep their families really small because, you know, they, and so that's why they, um, or endorse abortion and things like, but he didn't. Like, but he said, but of course, like we, we, like we, we have to fight against this despair, and you know, it's not up to us to say. You know, he he just made the argument that like, well, the more children that the workers have, the more working class um, champions there will be. So it's good. But he he also said, well, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't fully endorse the free and um, um, the free access of abortion and contraception, right? So, you know, th- this kind of balancing between a revolutionary perspective and like what is necessary and um like moral right now is 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 possible but it 
I just don't think there's any effort in making this kind of maybe this, what I've cited is maybe a bad um, analogy, but <laughs> like I, I think it, there is some some um, congruency here, right? Because like, of course, like you know, if someone is is aborting their 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 child because they don't have any better options, like that's still a sad um, kind of a sad uh, um, thing to happen. Situation, right? yeah, but but it's still better than them being forced to do something that they don't want to do, you know, bear a child that they don't want for whatever reason. Like they're still at least making some kind of choice here, given the limited circumstances that they're imposed on. But like, you know, we're not going to validate that choice as like the best, like, you know, the best choice or this was this is great. Like you're, you know, we're, we're hopeless anyway, so it's just better this way. Like this kind of petty bourgeois outlook, like that's not that's not the revolutionary perspective. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, that is a good uh, analogy, actually, because like this. Is the difference between um, def defending a right that's been gained under um, bourgeois democracy, which essentially finds a, you know, if if not if nothing else, sort of a least bad outcome for somebody who's in a very difficult, almost impossible situation in some cases. Uh, there's a difference between that and then you know either say, saying that that's the best possible outcome because you know humanity's fucked, everybody might as well die, you know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just to be clear, I am a fully pro uh, free and open access to abortion. I just want to see our abortion <laughs> episode for more details. Yeah, I just want to make that clear. Like, um, I very much agree with Leonard's outlook and that point. Like, I, you know, I, it's just not like, yeah, sometimes you're constrained, but there's still a better situation possible. But that doesn't mean that is what you should be aspiring towards as an ultimate goal, which I think is is kind of like what the sentence, this final closing sentence of Hamilton's leaves us with. It's like, well, it's just the best thing we have. Like, Lenin would never say that. <laughs> No, exactly. <laughs> you would never say like, well, the provisional government is just the best we have. <laughs> yeah, Kerensky's a, he's a good guy doing a difficult job. Yeah, he's not perfect, but <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, was like, <laughs> Let, let's not rush to judgment about his secret arrangements with the British and French ambassadors. <laughs> you know, in, in fact, like, um, you know, when, when the, the constituent assembly was, um, when the elections were bringing forward a result that would have meant a loss of power to the Soviets, Lenin didn't join in with the slogan, well, all power to the constituent assembly. It's the best we can do. <laughs> yeah, got rid of you it. dissolved it. <laughs> got rid of it. And you know what? A hundred years, 103 years later, the libs are still crying. Yeah, but, uh, you know, like that's, uh, this is the kind of communist perspective I want to read about, you know, in the <laughs> Morning Star, whatever. P for peace and socialism. How about for... How about for proletarian revolution? Just yeah. to just a guess, not for you know pacifism and mild social democracy. Yeah. All right. So Conrad Hamilton, um, no hate. No hate. <laughs> thanks but for no writing thanks. this article. <laughs> no, thanks for writing this article. It's actually a, a very good intellectual um, thing for me to read because I was able to revisit uh, state revolution. So <laughs> always grateful for a Thank chance you. to do that. Yeah, so I hope that your piece has, if anything, inspired people to actually check uh, what Lenin actually said in Sane Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, come on the show. Maybe if you want to debate us. <laughs> oh, God, is this a Ben Shapiro moment? Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm, debate us. No, just to have a, converse, a friendly conversation about revolutionary um, tactics and strategy. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can explain to us what the state will do. 
um, in the circumstance that would be better, like how an authoritarian interventionist state is actually better. And we can explain why that's not better. <laughs> if we hadn't made it clear already. Uh, yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be... And um, enjoy your New Year celebrations, whatever they are. Yes. Happy New Year. Very happy New Year. But we are going to be okay. uh, taking a week off broadcasting uh, next week. Uh, but we will be returning to action in a week after that, won't we? Yes, definitely. Um, so yeah, don't uh, keep keep in uh, tune in <laughs> after the yeah. after so, that one week. <laughs> yes, after that enormous period away. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm we, sure you we, won't miss this too much. You can go well, into the backlog. <laughs> yeah, go into the catalog. There's an awful lot in there. An awful lot about Lenin as well. Yes. Okay. Thanks. Everyone. All right. Goodbye. Bye.